And we are back for another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. We have hypernatremia today. We're going to have a lot of fun, as is the usual. Uh, please remember, everyone, to go on to ninjanerd.org, grab your subscription, any of the three-month, the three six-month, or the one-year plan. Get your notes, your illustrations. Let's get down to it. Let's get right into it. Hypernatremia, let's go. Zach, how are we feeling? Oh, we're, we're good. All right, so hypernatremia, when we talk about this, there's the basic kind of pathophysiology that I think if we have a good understanding of that, I think we'll have a pretty decent understanding of the diagnostic approach. So really when we talk about hypernatremia, what's the real reason? What's the mechanism behind it? It's really just due to water losses. So the patient is losing a lot more water than they're able to replace. Um, and that's the most common cause. And now generally when a patient becomes hypernatremic, right, that sodium rises um, and the water amount with inside of their blood maybe is decreasing from this water loss. It increases the plasma osmolality and that really drives up your ADH production naturally. When ADH production goes up, it should trigger you to reabsorb water across your kidneys. And that'll hopefully increase the water amount within your bloodstream. If you increase the amount of water within your, your bloodstream, theoretically, you should decrease your plasma osmolality and fix that problem. The other way that we help to be able to increase our water volume that we're potentially losing from other sources is that we also trigger thirst mechanisms. And generally, these patients will drink a certain amount of water, increase the absorption across their GIT, get water into the bloodstream, and again, volume replete themselves as well as help to decrease their plasma osmolality. And that generally, whenever you get a lot of water into your bloodstream, you'll start kind of like diluting down that sodium and normalizing the sodium. That's how patients will normally compensate. However, if a patient can't replete their water, you know, um, losses by trying to take in as much water as possible, then they may not correct their hypernatremia. And there's a very important patient population that are having an impaired access to water. And I really want you to remember that, guys, that generally it is really, really difficult for a patient who's hypernatremic, who has the ability to correct it. If they have access to water, they'll correct that on their own. It is really rare, not too common, um, unless the patient has an impaired access to water. So think about patients who have an altered mental status, who are delirious, basically, um, demented, or maybe have, uh, you know, they're intubated, they're not able to drink water, um, or Think about those who are like neonates and they don't have that ability to access water easily. That's really, really important, my friends. But I think when it really comes down to it, really what I want you guys to take away from this is, again, the basic pathophysiology of hypernatremia is water losses and you can't replete those water losses quick enough. Um, and generally, again, altered patients, neonates, intubated patients are really common, uh, uh, you know, patient populations who can't replete that water intake appropriately and correct their hypernatremia. So that kind of begs the question, what's the real kind of cause behind these water losses? Well, you can be losing water from the kidneys, so you're peeing out tons of water, or you can be losing things from other sources besides the kidneys, like the skin, the GI tract, etc. And so that's where we lead into the next causes, which what are the causes of the water loss? Well, if it's renal, this could be things like diuretics. So think about loop diuretics, think about osmotic diuretics. Um, so osmotic diuretics include things like mannitol, urea, and believe it or not, really high glucose levels as well. So look about that in that patient with HHS or DKA. The other thing that could be from the kidneys is that they're not producing ADH. So the, uh, in this case, the posterior pituitary and hypothalamus aren't producing ADH. 
when you don't produce ADH, what happens is you don't actually create those aquaporin subunits in the, the kidneys. So you don't reabsorb water across the actual collecting duct. And so all that water just gets lost. There's, there's a disease when you don't produce ADH. You know what that's called, guys? It's called diabetes insipidus. And generally when it's from the actual hypothalamic and pituitary process where you aren't producing it, it's called central diabetes insipidus. And so if a patient has like a hypothalamic lesion or a pituitary lesion of some sort, or they're near the point of brain herniation from some type of process, these patients can actually develop this process where they don't produce ADH and they just lose a ton of water into their urine. There's their water loss. Another thing is that maybe the patient has a normal hypothalamus, normal pituitary, they're not herniating, and so they're producing ADH, but the ADH that they are producing, the kidneys aren't responding to. So it's just as if it's the same as though they're not making it. And so what happens is if your ADH is not actually having a response to the kidneys, the same thing happens. They don't reabsorb water and they lose all that water into their urine. And so those are the two primary reasons patients will lose tons of water from their kidneys is DI, whether it be from hypothalamus pituitary, that's central DI, or whether the ADH that's being produced normally, they're not responding to at the kidney level. That's nephrogenic DI. And then the other one is diuretics, whether that be loop diuretics or osmotic diuretics. Okay. Then last cause um, for, well, for water losses is extra renal water losses. So you're not losing water from the kidneys. You're losing it from something else. Maybe you're vomiting a ton of water up um, and that could be one potential cause or you're having a punami down there and you're just causing a massive amount of water loss from diarrhea. So watch out for that as well. So diarrhea, vomiting, excessive NG tube suctioning of a lot of gastric contents can definitely do this. Now, if it's not from the GIT that you're losing water, definitely take a second to look. Has the patient been having really high fevers? Have they been breathing really fast? Have they been intubated for a while? Um, have they been sweating a lot? These are definitely ways which patients can have a lot of insensible water losses. So definitely take that into consideration. So again, GI losses and then insensible losses such as high respiratory rates, intubated patients, patients who are sweating, have fevers, or have like a burns. These are patients who are losing a lot of water, but it's not from their kidneys. The last reason that someone will develop hypernatremia has nothing to do with water losses. So a patient maybe is not losing a ton of water from their kidneys or extra renal sources. Instead, they're just getting loaded with sodium. So that's the third and final cause of hypernatremia, which is this increase in the sodium gain. What would that be due to? We're just loading the patient's blood with sodium. So this could be from the infusions that we put them on, sodium chloride infusions that we put them on, uh, sodium bicarbonate as well, um, things like hypertonic solutions. These are all reasons that we could push the patient's sodium up, but it's iatrogenic. It's medications that they're being given. The only other reason why a patient will have a sodium gain is they're producing too much aldosterone. You guys know that there's a condition called Kahn syndrome. And what happens is they produce too much aldosterone and reabsorb tons of sodium across their um, kidneys. And so that really amps up their sodium with inside of the bloodstream. So that's really the two primary reasons that you get sodium gain. One, iatrogenic, you're giving them the sodium, whether that be sodium chloride infusion, sodium bicarb, hypertonic solutions, or they're producing too much aldosterone and reabsorbing that sodium across the kidney. So again, there's three reasons why. What is it? Renal water loss, DI and diuretics, extra renal water loss, GI losses and sensible losses. And third thing is sodium gain. 
iatrogenic, like infusions containing sodium, or hyperaldosteronism. And that's really what it comes down to. So I think the last thing for the pathophysiology is why should we care about hypernatremia? What does it do that it actually causes problems to the patient? And really, it's just coming down to the basic biology that you guys learn. Whenever you take a cell and you put it into a hypertonic solution, what does it do? Well, generally, the hypertonic solution drags water out of the cells and causes the cells to shrink up. And that could be a problem, especially if a patient was prior um, hyponatremic. You know what this called whenever you go from hyponatremic and you push their sodium up too quickly and shrink their cells? You can cause something called osmotic demyelination syndrome. So again, you see this whenever the patient's hyponatremic and you push their sodium up too quickly, greater than 8 milliequivalents in a 24-hour period. That's one reason. Um, that you want to be really careful. The second thing that you want to really want to watch out for is with patients who have hyponatremia, um, they can also have one other issue. This is more in pediatric patients, but if you think about it, you shrink the brain. When you shrink the brain, you actually can kind of create like a stretch or a shearing forces on the arteries and veins around the brain and cause those to rupture. And you can actually create bleeds. So intracranial hemorrhages, subarachnoid hemorrhages, and then the patient can present with a lot of neurological dysfunction. So really watch out for neurological dysfunction in these patient populations. But that would really cover the pathophysiology. All right, so that's a perfect kind of introduction foundation to hypernatremia. We've got the causes down, we've have uh, pathophysiology down, and now we can kind of transition into the diagnostic approach. So, how do we go about diagnosing these patients who come in, and they don't come in saying I have I've got the hypernatremias? <laughs> we have to know the diagnostic approach in order to really figure out what's going on, and then how do we treat it? Yeah, so it's actually not too hard. I mean, in comparison to hyponatremia, which is way more involved, hypernatremia is actually really straightforward. So when a patient comes in, that sodium is greater than 145 milliequivalents per liter, which is, you know, the, the, the upper limit of normal of sodium. Whenever it's higher than that, then you have, again, a high sodium level. So the next thing to consider is, is to figure out, okay, most commonly it's due to water losses. Is the water loss coming from the kidney or is it coming from something else? And so what I like to do is I check the urine osmolality and that'll right, right away tell me that. So one of the cool things about this, if I check the urine osmolality and the urine osmolality is really low, what that tells me is that the, the actual urine is very water rich. If the urine is water rich because the urine osmolality is low, what that means is, is that that's a renal water loss. I'm pissing out water. Why am I pissing out water? Well, I'm on diuretics such as loop diuretics, osmotic diuretics like mannitol, urea, hyperglycemia, or I got the DI. I got the central DI or I got the nephrogenic DI. And that right there leads you to the renal water loss causes. If the urine osmolality is high, generally greater than 600, then we start thinking that, okay, now the osmolality is a little bit higher. It's a little bit more of a concentrated urine. It's not as much rich in water, so it can't be a renal water loss. It's got to be an extra renal water loss or that last random cause that we threw in there, a sodium gain. All right, cool. So right right away, I already kind of like broke my step up of all the hypernatremia causes using urine osmolality. If it's low, they're pissing out a lot of water, renal water loss. 
If the iron osmolality is high, it's extra renal or sodium gain. So then that leads to the next step. Okay, I, I know that it's a renal water loss. Well, how do I determine if it's diuretics? How do I determine if it's DI? And how do I determine if it's central or nephrogenic? That's a great question. So when patients are on diuretics, they become hypovolemic, right? When you become hypovolemic, guess what you kind of naturally do? You actually drop your blood pressure and trigger ADH production. And if ADH goes up, what does that do to your kidneys? It reabsorbs water. So if a patient's on diuretics, whether it be loops or osmotics, it's going to trigger a slight bump in the ADH production, which will reabsorb water. So will a patient who doesn't produce ADH or doesn't respond to ADH in comparison to a patient who's producing a little bit of ADH, which one do you think is going to have more water in their urine? The one who doesn't produce ADH or the one that doesn't respond to ADH? That's obvious, right? That was a dumb question. But they're going to lose tons of water, those patients. Whereas the diuretic patients, they will pee out a lot of water, but they're going to drop their, their blood volume a little bit when you get rid of a lot of water from the body. So it triggers ADH to conserve a little bit of that water in between. And so these patients will have a slightly higher urine osmolality. Generally, we say 300 to 600 is ideally within the diuretic range for that causes of renal water loss. And if the urine osmolality is less than 300, there's not many diseases that do that. And that really tells me that it's DI. Okay. So the next question is, is it's DI. How do I determine if it's central or if it's nephrogenic? Well, what's the problem? Central, you don't produce ADH. Nephrogenic, you don't respond to ADH. Well, if I gave the patient ADH and they weren't producing it, wouldn't that fix the problem? Absolutely. So I'm going to use this as a test because if I gave ADH to a person who was central DI, it should fix them. If I gave it to a person who was nephrogenic DI, it shouldn't do anything. And so we give the patient desmopressin, which is ADH. And what we do is we look to see how the urine osmolality changed. In other words, if I give them ADH and it reabsorbs water, the urine osmolality should go up, all right? And so what we'll do is if a patient has DI, we'll give them desmopressin. If the urine osmolality goes up, that's central DI. If urine osmolality does not change, that's nephrogenic DI. All right, so again, hypernatremia, high sodium, check the urine osmolality. If it's less than 300, it's likely DI. If it's between 300 to 600, it's likely still, it's still low, but it's likely diuretics. Look at their history. If they have DI, so it's less than 300 urine osmoles, do the desmopressin challenge test. If the urine osmolality increases in response to desmopressin, it's central DI. If it does not change, it is nephrogenic DI. At least at the other arm. Okay, so what if the urine osmolality was high from the get-go? It was greater than 600. Well, then it's extra renal water losses or it's sodium gain. Well, how do I determine that? You check the urine sodium. If the urine sodium is really high, it's usually a sodium gain problem. If the urine sodium is low, that's usually an extra renal water loss problem. And that's usually one of the factors because generally, again, when you check this, if it's the urine sodium is generally kind of like on the higher end, it definitely will help you in a more of a kind of a logistical way to determine if it is a sodium gain versus an extra renal water loss. And that's generally how you can go about that. And also history is very, very important here. Have you noticed that the patient has been vomiting, pooping a lot, having fevers, they've been intubated? Those are great things that you can pick up on your exam um, when you're asking them questions or looking at them to determine if the patient is extra renal water 
losses. It doesn't have to be too complicated, guys. But if you did want to kind of use the test to help you, urine sodium may be slightly beneficial. If it's low, it's actually in a water loss. If it's high, it supports more of a sodium gain problem. And that's generally how we would go about this. The last thing that I would also do in concordance with all of these tests is be assessing the patient's volume status. Because it's pretty obvious that if these patients are peeing out tons and tons of water, like in diuretics, or losing tons of water, like in a GI losses and sensible losses, they're going to become hypovolemic, right, to some degree. What will those patients look like? Look at their jugular venous pressure. Is it low? That supports that. What's their IVC diameter? Does it look skinny and tiny? Okay, that supports that. What about their mucous membranes and their skin turgor? Well, they look dry in their mucous membranes and their skin turgor is really, really decreased. Again, that supports a hypovolemic cause. What's their BU and creatinine? Oh, it's pretty high. Their urine output's also a little low. They don't have any edema and their heart rate's a little tacky, you know, and their, their blood pressure's on the softer end. When you have them do the orthostatics, it's, they definitely have some hypotension and symptoms that come up with it. All of these things point to a hypovolemic cause. And then again, you kind of just say, all right, well, if it's hypovolemia, here's some of my options. It's either a renal water loss, such as diuretics, or it's an extra renal water loss, like GI losses and sensible losses. Uh, now, if it's a patient in DI, DI, believe it or not, the patients will tend to try to drink water. And so they tend to drink a decent amount and maintain a degree of euvolemia. So these patients will tend to be euvolemic. The last one is the hypervolemic patient, and that tends to be the sodium gain patients. So the sodium gain patients, you're giving them infusion, so you're filling them with fluid, or they have hyperaldosteronism, so they're reabsorbing sodium and water, and they're just a little bit more on the hypervolemic end, so they look a little puffy. So if you look at their jugular venous pressure, it may be elevated. Their IVC may be a little bit bigger. They maybe have some pulmonary edema. Maybe they look a little bit puffy like the Michelin man. Maybe their skin turgor is normal. Maybe their mucous membranes appear moist. Maybe their vital signs appear like they're actually hypertensive, which would support a hypervolemic cause. Maybe their renal function appears appropriate. And so with that being said, if that's the case and they appear more on the hypervolemic side, that supports a sodium gain problem. So I think those are other things to use in assisting you to the diagnosis of a patient who has hypernatremia, guys. Alrighty, so there you have it. The diagnostic approach has been taken care of. Thank you, Zach. All we have left now, guys, is the treatment. So we have everything. We've done pathophase. We've got the causes. We figured out the diagnostic approach. Now let's treat it. Yeah, so with hypernatremia, it's actually, again, pretty straightforward. Most common cause is usually water loss. So give them that water back. And now there's likely a question that you'll see on your exam about this. Whenever you give patients water back, obviously you can give it in a couple of different ways. You can have them drink water, which would be ideal if that was possible. Um, if that's not possible, sometimes you have to put a little feeding tube into their stomach and then feed them with water that way. But that's the general way to obviously give them water is I would prefer for it to go entirely down there through their GI tract. If they can't tolerate that or they need a little bit more aggressive water repletion, then putting it in through an IV such as D5W, which is dextrose with water, that actually is appropriate. Another thing that you could do is give them a hypotonic saline solution. So it has a little bit of sodium chloride, which is not ideal, but it does have a decent amount of water within that solution. So those are things that you can do. So give the patient back water, preferably through their GIT. Either they drink it or you give it to them through a tube. If that doesn't work, IV, D5W is preferred. 
And if for some reason they can't tolerate the D5W, then you can do half normal saline or quarter normal saline, which are these hypotonic solutions. But the last question that comes into play is, okay, how much water do I give them? That's a good question, right? So you need to determine their free water deficit. And so again, I want you guys to write this formula down. It's basically determined that the free water deficit is equal to the patient's serum sodium minus 140 divided by 140 multiplied by their total body water. Now you may ask, what's how do I calculate their total body water, Zach? I don't, will they know that themselves? No, no. You have to take their weight in kilograms and then multiply it by a constant. So I want you to remember 0.5 is the constant for females and 0.6 is the constant for males. So if for some random thing, I kind of plugged it all in. I said, I have a 70 kilogram female whose sodium is 156. What's their free water deficit, guys? Just plug it all in. So it's 156 minus 140 divided by 140 multiplied by their weight, which is 70 kilograms, and they're a female, so their constant is 0.5. And when you do all that, you get about four liters. So their free water deficit is four liters. I need to give them four liters over the next 24 hours to be able to replete their water losses so that I can treat their hypernatremia. And how will I do that? Whether that be them drinking water, me putting water down their OG or NG tube, or putting water into their IV to go right into their venous circulation via D5W. And if I can't give them that, then I'll do a hypotonic solution like half normal or quarter normal saline. One of the things that you have to be careful with when you give these patients these hypotonic solutions like water or half normal, quarter normal saline is you're going to drop their sodium, right? And that's good because you want to get that sodium down. But you don't want to drop it too quickly because when you drop the sodium too quickly, you create fluid shifts. So then what you can do is you can actually cause cerebral edema. So you can cause the opposite problem where you cause the cells to swell up because you're creating a hypotonic solution, right? If you put a cell into a hypotonic solution, what happens? Water goes into the cells and swells those bad boys up. So how do I prevent that? I try to avoid going greater than 0.5, write this down guys, I don't want to go greater than 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour. So let's make our lives easier. What's 24 over a 24 hour period? If you half that, what is that? It's 12. Try to avoid going over 12 milliequivalents within a 24 hour period. In other words, if the patient started off at 150, I don't want to drop them down more than 12 from that 150 point because I risk increasing the risk of cerebral edema. All right. So it's just stay under that point. Maybe drop them down from 150 to 140. Just don't go any lower than that. So that's kind of the idea with replacing the free water deficit is give them that volume, but try not to give them too much that it drops their sodium too quickly. The last thing is treating the underlying cause. Whenever you treat their free water deficit, you have to figure out why they were hypernatremic in the first place. So treating that is helpful. Obviously, re repleting their water is good, but it's just going to keep happening if you don't treat the reason why they're losing water. So if they're pooing, stop them from pooing. If they're vomiting, stop them from vomiting. If they're having fevers, treat the source of the fever. If they're you know, intubated and they're having a lot of problems with that, again, try whatever you have to do to fix the underlying cause. What's important ones to remember is DI. So in central DI, they don't produce ADH. Give them ADH. Give them desmopressin. So that's one way. In nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, it doesn't matter if you give them ADH or not. You actually want to give them something weird. Um, and it's called thiazide. So thiazides tend to be somewhat beneficial in these patients. And then if you really want to remember this, guys, it may come up. I can't guarantee it. But amylaride is one of the diuretics that you actually give to patients who have lithium 
induced uh, DI. So nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, one of the most common causes that you'll see on your exam is lithium. So remember, lithium hypercalcemia tend to be the biggest causes of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So thiazides is good for hypercalcemia, and then amylaride is good for lithium-induced nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. But that would cover the DI. And then for the sodium overload, it's really, believe it or not, diuretics, because diuretics will get rid of a lot of free water and some sodium, right? So you're going to get rid of sodium and water. So there's you're going to drop your sodium, right? Because so diuretics will help to get rid of some of the sodium. But if you're going to get rid of some of their water too. So if I get rid of sodium, but I also get rid of water, what do I run into? Well, then again, I'm, I'm getting rid of water. So there's a water loss. They're hypervolemic, so they're a little bit too puffy. So if I get rid of water, yes, it'll reduce that hypervolemic state. But then I also risk of, cause the risk of hypernatremia. So how do I prevent that? I give them free water. All right, so you want the diuretic to pull off sodium and a little bit of volume, but you want to replace that volume with free water, which may sound counterintuitive, but it's what's best in these patients who are hypervolemic, but also hypernatremic. So in hypervolemic, hypernatremic patients, give them diuretics to reduce a lot of their systemic volume and congestion. And that'll help to get rid of some of the sodium and water, but replace their free water losses with D5W or Entero water, ideally. And that would cover the treatment. All righty. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. We have hypernatremia covered. Last week, we did hyponatremia. Now we got hyper. We have the full picture kind of completed here. And we're just excited to keep making more podcast episodes for you. So thank you, guys. All right, Zach, give it the natural send off, please. <laughs> yeah, guys, I really hope this made sense. And I think hypernatremia is way easier than hyponatremia. It's one of those things that you really just got to watch out for, especially in patients who are in the ICU, which is usually the common population that you'll see that in. So just be aware of that but i hope that you guys liked it i hope it made sense i hope it helped and i love you guys i thank you guys and as always until next time mm -hmm.